0: you're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello, and welcome to another installment of the Atom History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today's guest is Dr. Keith Wattenpah, an associate professor of human rights studies at UC Davis. Dr. Wattenpah, thanks for coming back on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure.
0: So the last time we had you here, you were talking about uh, a multi-country study of the situation of Syrian students and scholars who have been displaced by the war in Syria. And especially, you mentioned this class of... People we could call middle class refugees. I refugees middle class problems such as needing access to education, et cetera, et cetera. Right,
1: the middle class refugee, and my formulation of the middle class refugee, which you know is, is shared by others in the humanitarian theory community, really derives from an idea I first proposed in my book Being Modern in the Middle East, which was that the old sort of Marxist notion that middle class is primarily a Question of wealth, the accumulation of wealth, um, doesn't really apply in the Middle East as much. That this is a region where uh, cultural capital, to borrow a term from another theorist, uh, where access to education, where uh, certain kinds of practices are critical in defining what is middle class. Um, a, a group between in in the early in the late Ottoman period and the early interwar period was neither poor. Nor part of the old Ottoman Sunni ruling elite, and this is also a, a function of the fact that you know you had many very wealthy non-Muslims who, because of their, they were they remained exterior to power, um, were sort of you know, hit a kind of ethno-religious glass ceiling mm-hmm. that really kept them in sort of middle-class status. So, the idea of being middle-class in the Middle East, uh, for in my work, revolved around being modern about um, a series of practices and ideas and cultural norms and values and mores and forms of, of dress and display, even the kinds of names you chose for your children that cumulatively defined one as being modern and being middle class.
0: Indeed, your book, which was published in 2006 now, it's not your, your most recent research project, it was actually an extension of your dissertation, was sort of uh, the latest development in that study of the notion of modernity. I. And indeed, you, you, you say being modern, not looking at what modernity is, but rather what it means to be modern, of course, in the Middle East. I remember, you know, this is a little behind-the-scenes information for our audience. I was an undergraduate at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, New York, uh, taking your class as my first uh, history elective. And you came into class one day and announced that you had finished your manuscript which to me meant very little because I knew nothing about <laughs> academia at the time. But now I realize what a moment that must have uh, been for you. And it was a, a book that generated a lot of interest among Ottoman and Middle East historians and at I the think time.
1: It continue, I think it continues to do so. I really saw a profound gap in our understanding of both cultural and social history in broader Ottoman studies and uh, interwar, Middle, interwar, the interwar period. And you 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 know you had this real focus um, in a previous generation of work on the elite. I mean, the most important book in the field of, for example, Syrian studies, is the work by Philip Khoury, yeah. uh, Syrian and the French Mandate, which is a really marvelous book. It's a beautiful narrative, but it's primarily its primary focus is the sort of elite Ottoman and post-Ottoman Sunni Ayan class of Syria and its form of elite nationalism and engagement with French colonialism. Then there was this sort of, uh, there was a, the the cultural turn completely skipped that generation, the subsequent generation, right? And then there began to be some focus on sort of more popular history. um, I think a kind of brief foray by some into subaltern studies, but the, the middle class continued to be left out. And it was left out for ideological reasons um, it was also left out because it seemed to be there was always this concern that the middle class was inauthentic, especially because of the perceived belief that it was o- that that non-Muslim minorities and non-Arabic-speaking minorities were overrepresented in the middle class. And indeed, much of my work focuses on Arab Christians, Armenians, and Jews who lived in these big. Arab cities of the Eastern Mediterranean.
0: Mm-hmm. And there's also an argument that the sectarian divides for example kind of undermine the uh for class formation. Right.
1: I mean what's really important is that you know there is a certain sectarian nature to class formation, but in places like Aleppo there was a tremendous amount of cross-sectarian solidarity between Muslim and non-Muslim members of the middle class in politics and in business. It didn't transfer, of course, into family life, but in or, or social gatherings. I mean those were fairly segregated spaces. But in politics uh-huh. and the economy, places where you would expect it to take place, there was a great deal of cooperation, even what I call intersectarian comedy, that was class based, that had less to do with other things. Now in times of stress, that didn't sure. always occur, right? But, um, but certainly in the formulation of some both opposition and collaboration with the French colonial um, presence, uh, there was solidarity across sectarian lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also in the formation of things like the for, you know, these various sort of chambers of commerce and industry and banking sectors and all sorts of areas like that, there was cooperation and collaboration. So class matters. And that was, that was something that was being utterly and completely forgotten or not being studied um, in the region. The other is that the concept of modernity is very complex. It's, it's, it's hard to grasp because we live in modernity. We are the fish in the water, right? We don't really see what it does around yeah. us all the time. And, and it, it's, it it takes a great deal of historical imagination to sort of step out of that and try to look at it from the outside. And I think what's critical is that uh, I wanted to engage with this, I think, very um, problematic idea of alternative modernity in my work as yeah. well. And I, I was, I was very concerned that alternative modernity was becoming this sort of overly broad concept. It was Borges's map. It was like describing everything for all people at all time. And I was wanting to think, well, you know, why do we have why would you put any adjective or any locative in front of modernity? You know, People who are modern don't think that they're modern like an Ottoman or modern like an Arab. They think they're yeah. modern, full stop. Now that modernity may not be, their, their experience, their historical experience of modernity may not be the same as it is in the metropolitan centers or something. But for them, being modern was something that was concrete, it was achievable, and it was something that was absolutely necessary for their success as members of their society and the prosperity of themselves and their families.
0: Although authors from the time would, there's, there are these strains of thoughts to say, that say, like, our modernity is going to be different than the Western model. Right. right. This does emerge.
1: This right. Is- I mean, they, they often say that, but then when you start to sort of look at the particulars, the details mm-hmm. of that, it resembles more... Sort of the the forms of practices of uh, of Western metropoles than it does anything mm-hmm. that's unique, and so I think there's a, a certain degree that that's a an incipient form of nationalism or cultural relativism, yeah. but it's not demonstrably different. So you know they it's a it's a situation is like we it's not we are like the Europeans. Mm-hmm. It's saying you know we are just as modern as the Europeans,
0: right? Well, so in that brief uh, discussion there you brought up a lot of bad memories of my comprehensive exams for me trying to write about you know what different authors think about modernity in the middle east and inevitably i myself in my work have kind of done away with the issue of modernity not because i don't think it's an important topic per se but because it's its own thing that needs to be handled so in the background here is is a uh, i think there's a feeling among among younger scholars that uh modernity is a is a tired academic topic.
1: I think let me just say this way modernity as a concept was abused by many academics in the past. I mean it was it it wasn't it it was confused with modernization.
0: Right conflating it was conflating this right uh-huh. all
1: these and it was confused with modernization. Um, it was abused in this sort of notional of alternative modernity. Um, and it became almost an empty signifier, right? Mm-hmm. And so younger scholars are justified in being sort of somewhat uh, reluctant to engage with it because mm-hmm. I think that the previous half-step before the, the current generation, I think, did not engage properly with this idea um, in ways that uh, scholars in other fields or other, other areas, I think, successfully did but it's a complicated idea but the it, but but my thinking in being modern was that it was the definitive component of what it meant to be middle class and i still right. actually stick by that idea right is that that within middle eastern society that group which most associates itself with being modern is generally the middle class of these societies right
0: whether or not it's important for historians we cannot argue to the Contrary of the fact that in not just in Aleppo but in Beirut but in Istanbul, right. Izmir, Mersin, all of these like cosmopolitan spaces of the late Ottoman period, being modern really mattered to a very broad swath of the population. And I think it's
1: that as a concept, it's still useful primarily in uh, the field of urban social history. I think it's uh, important in understanding phenomena like bureauc- bureaucratization, higher education humanitarianism, uh, nationalism, especially secular nationalism. But you know if you're studying other fields it I don't know if it really has as much mm-hmm. uh, valence right I mean it's not as powerful uh, but still I think it, it should be it should be a subtext of any of our under it, it's a way to better understand the relationship between non-western middle classes and the West, in a way that transcends this idea that they're merely a collection of mimic men or they're compradors, or they're inauthentic. In fact, the concept of being modern restores to the middle class a degree of agency, which is often denied in in sort of hardcore Marxist scholarship or in, you know, Fanonian approaches to understanding compradorialism and resistance to colonialism.
0: Well, I think that's a nice way of situating this topic of the middle class and and their ideas about modernity uh, within the broader historiography. So to delve a little bit deeper into the topic, maybe could you explain what are the forces of class formation? What's uh, contributing to the creation of a new, as you say, middle class in these late Ottoman cities?
1: I mean, I I start with the, in the book itself, um, I really begin with the 1908 revolution. Because I see the revolution as the way that the middle class throughout the Ottoman Empire Began to inscribe itself in politics, that that really is its debut as a as a political force, or at least and its attempt to become part of the one of the one element of the constellation of forces in Ottoman society. So, what
0: created that that class? What created
1: it was you know uh, new forms of education, bureaucratization. Uh, increasing uh, economic penetration by the West, which required a class of middleman agents who understood Mm -hmm. uh, forms of uh, commercial law, foreign languages, commerce, and banking. Uh, It also was a feature of the expansion of Western higher education opportunities, primarily at institutions like the Syrian Protestant College, but also institutions in Istanbul and southeastern Anatolia, um, it also emerged because of the uh, sort of broad stabilization and security of great Arab cities like Aleppo, Damascus, mm-hmm. and Beirut, which you know even up until the middle part of the nineteenth century had been re- had been, in fact, insecure. Um, two generations of relative prosperity and security in those cities allowed for the emergence of the middle class. Mm-hmm. There was also transformations in communicative technology. Yeah. Um, and also there were um, more opportunities for young, primarily non-Muslim members of this middle class to travel abroad for uh, educational opportunities in Western Europe. And there was the final component was the uh, emergence of uh, primarily of emigration to Western Europe and return migration uh, I mean, to Western Europe and North America as documented by people like Akram Khatar. And Saragaltieri, mm-hmm. which also involved reverse migration um, and transfer back from the Mahjar, Back from you mean? the well, So all of these things contributed, but also, I mean, the Ottoman state began to understand that it needed to create a middle class, both a commercial and bureaucratic middle class, as part of its efforts at state centralization and modernization.
0: Right. I mean, you mentioned all this contact with uh, would be Western uh, societies that that's part of this mix, but also, indeed, the the Education Ministry of Abdul Hamid II is stressing very much the same kind of uh, notions about about being modern,
1: right? And so you, I mean, yeah, you know, we we have to focus rightly as people like Ben Fortnite do on these uh, uh, Rustia schools and so on, um,
0: which develop in conversation with the arrival of missionary right. schools. And so I think
1: that that is really a profound element of it. And but you see a transformation. You can document it in newspapers, books, novels, right. poetry. There is this emerging sensibility and consciousness of being modern, of being in conversation with ideas uh, that that have their origins in the West, but are being um, domesticated, if you will, in the non-West. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, uh, you know, my work in particular has had crossover into other parts of the world. I, I participated in a volume about non-Western middle classes that talk about Brazil and Southeast Asia and so on, where Mm -hmm. I think very similar processes were taking place at roughly the same time. So this is a global phenomenon. And what's really, I think, unfortunate is our field, by and large, has failed to connect with the global phenomenon of the emergence of, of the middle class in the 19th and early part of the 20th century. And I think that's been in the non-West, and I think that's been very problematic.
0: Yeah, especially when you consider that middle-class folks from late Adam and Aleppo, a lot of them end up being middle-class people in South America or in some Absolutely. completely different part yeah. of the world. So this middle class is is international.
1: And I think that's, and I think it's really still a rich field of study. I I'd always imagined that you know I, when I when I was writing Being Modern that I was helping to create in conversation with colleagues a kind of way to study this kind of class formation in the great cities of the Eastern Mediterranean. And that, you know, there would be studies like it in Cairo or in Beirut or in Baghdad. And I've been kind of frustrated that that, that hasn't taken place. And I, I would really have been... But also there were other, I mean, you know, other transformations in the field. I mean, the book came out, was really formulated before nine eleven, and it came out, and was written in the period after nine eleven. I think that there were various other kinds of shifts that took place in the, in our field that meant that this was no longer as as crucial or
0: important. But I'm wondering if we can maybe talk about for example how this comes to bear on the post-Ottoman period, right? We mentioned this the, the emergence of this uh, ambiguously international Ottoman middle class, but then with the arrival of the French in Syria, you have a semi-colonial situation there. Indeed, People would call it colonial, but it's the mandate. So I sense. Well, that it's I mean, it,
1: it's it's you know, I always call it man, uh, colonialism and drag, right? So <laughs> the well, uh, yeah.
0: So but but the the
1: French the French colonial authorities when they first come into Syria in many ways see that emerging middle class, especially that middle class that was francophone, as natural allies. And you know, they, there was tension, of course, uh, but the French really saw themselves as potentially being. Um, Looking at that middle class and helping enable it as an emerging power within Syria, right? And so they were they were committed to some extent to helping it prosper and thrive, especially for in its very narrow France's very narrow political interests in opposition to the elite, the Sunni elite of Syria, the Sunni nationalist elite yeah. of Syria, uh-huh. uh, but also as natural analogs to their own middle class populations. I mean, when they saw them, they recognized themselves in that group. And that was there, and and it wasn't necessarily vice versa. It
0: wasn't mutual. Was it mutual?
1: There was there was to some extent there was mutual, but there was also trepidation. I mean, these still were outsiders, um, and you know. It, but our contemporary dichotomous understanding of collaboration and resistance does mm-hmm. not necessarily apply in this situation. Sure. So, um, but the French, the as the French, I mean, the French helped maintain certain kinds of educational, bureaucratic, and social processes that began in the late Ottoman period. And this is actually very, a very cruel, crucial element of my work, which is that those who study the French Mandate period in isolation from the late Ottoman period often mistake French initiatives for... Uh, they, they often believe that it was the French who introduced certain kinds yeah. of policies, ideas... Concepts, reforms that in fact had begun in the late Ottoman period, and they were merely either hijacking or fostering these in right. the interwar period. So, really, during the French Mandate period, all of the processes which helped create the middle class were still active, but there's an additional layer of, a, of the French metropole on these. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in education, it meant that many more young Syrians, including young Syrians who would go on to found the, the Baath Party or something, got great scholarships to go study at the Sorbonne, right? So that there was, you know, the, the tools and techniques of middle-class formation that had begun in the late Ottoman period were accelerated in the French period, um, but directed them more towards the, the metropole and away from Istanbul, um, and you know there's interesting parallels. I mean, for example, in the in you know in Turkey, this period is marked by the attempt by the Turkish state to create a, a national middle class. I mean, this is yeah. you know really part of Turkish policy because you know the, the First World War had exterminated a large amount of the non-Muslim middle class that, that had been part of late Ottoman prosperity, and so something had to take its place. And so government Turkish government policies in that period were focused on creating a middle class through I mean, education, through economic and so it's it there's a, a similar process taking place in Iraq and in Egypt at the same time as well.
0: but the idea of a state trying to create a middle class. They don't call it, it that. Yeah, but it's it's it must be tied to a notion of a modernization project, right? right? Otherwise it doesn't make sense right.
1: because they don't they don't call it, oh, you know, we've this is our middle class policy. They call it educational reform, they call it uh, infrastructure development—they call it all sorts of other things—but it really is in is providing the state providing the tools that help form the middle class to create the middle class as the state's primary support, um, as its primary constituency, as its kind of vanguard, um, and yeah, you know, it's very useful to have the middle class on your side.
0: But that's very different to a notion we sometimes that sometimes say that. The middle class can make a revolution, right? That there's such there's thing. There's no as, revolution without the middle class, or there's class. no revolution without the middle class. There's a tension there, though, in those two concepts: one that the middle class would be the vanguard of a state, and the other that the middle class would be the. When I mean,
1: you think about these, I mean, this is going a little far, far afield, but you think about these so-called Arab Spring revolutions, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there there was a middle class component to these, sure.
0: particularly on the ideological right. level,
1: and. So, you know, one wonders if, you know, you, you could sort of think back to 1908. Yeah. And you could think about, you know, the degree to which, you know, middle-class civil servants and middle-class liberal professionals and doctors and and others were participants in the rev- both in formulating the ideology of the revolution and then helping carry it out. And then how many of that members of that middle class then were targeted in the counter-revolutionary, and then in the Ittihadist period as well. Oh, true. So, you know, middle classes are, you know, a state would like to keep the middle class on its side. A colonial power would like to keep the middle class on its side. If you lose their support, you risk revolution. So, or you risk some kind of upheaval, right? Uh, So,
0: I know your work deals a lot with the the press. Mm Mm-hmm. And the press is where these conversations about the role of the state, about you know the nature of modernity, where they all take place. Could you maybe situate uh, the middle class as represented in that press within that uh, dynamic between state and right. these one other factors? One of the factors? one of the
1: reasons, of course, I had to start my story of Aleppo with 1908 was that it became that the degree to which the press became a vehicle for mit- the middle class. You know, without the, the the harsh censorship of the late Hamidian period um it was really important I mean the, it, and I've always wondered you know I've, I know that there was plenty of middle class activity before 1908 it's just that we don't have a lot of beyond some sort of secondhand references or novels and so on we don't really have a good sense of it from the day-to-day yeah, sort of prosaic nature that we would really need to see using journalism. So uh, the middle class used the press to explain themselves to themselves. They used the press to identify um, and sort of broadcast its membership. Uh, And they used the press as a way to uh, create solidarity um, and also to express their concerns with, with state authorities. Um, and the, the journalism of the, you know, the 1908 to 1910 period in Aleppo was especially rich. Uh, I mean, there were three dozen newspapers emerged in that period, and every single major city in the Ottoman Empire experienced the same kind of thing. So there was this immense reservoir of, of, um, sort of interest and uh, aptitude towards uh, uh, journalism and a desire of, towards expression that had really been pent up in the Hamidian period that comes out after 1908, which really tells us, this really tells us that the middle class has in fact arrived in that moment. And then, you know, newspaper consolidation and so on, you know, takes place. But still, you know, during the course of the interwar period, uh, newspapers in Aleppo in particular were still very vibrant and vital sources of debate and discussion and, our knowledge of the period is really shaped by the journalistic experience.
0: So but here the issue of identity becomes a little bit relevant because you talked about this emergence of middle class press during the late Ottoman period. To the extent that I understand it, there's a lot of Ottoman identity going on there. We're Ottomans, et cetera, et cetera After the end of the Ottoman Empire, that's gone. So who are the who are middle class
1: I mean one of the things we talk about I talk about in being modern is how Being Ottoman persisted in Aleppo long after the republic was established.
0: Under a different name. Well, no.
1: I mean, they, I think to some extent they're uh, amongst much, I mean, this is sort of a a footnote to this, is that amongst the Sunni elite of Aleppo in particular, there was a persistence of Ottomanism even after the empire itself collapsed. And I have this sort of... you know, I I talk about uh, Ibrahim Hananu who was a yeah. mid-level Ottoman bureaucrat and also sort of you know sort of uh, arabized Kurdish sort of landlord in the region outside Aleppo who really was the last Ottoman. I mean he, he you know I he, it was n- never clear to me that he was a great Arab nationalist. It makes much more sense as an expression of late Ottomanism than it does as an expression of early Arabism. Sure. Uh, But that's, of course, I mean, in in the context of French colonial Syria, that was kind of a moribund ideology, right? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Um, But Hananu, you know, was fighting, you know, saw himself as um, within the context of the Turkish War for Independence as completely allied with the the Kemalists. And only when the border fell between him and Turkey and he was cut off from military supplies did he... uh, did he stop fighting? And even then, he continued the fight. Yeah. So, but amongst the the Arabic speaking, non Muslim elite of Syria, um, the break with the Ottoman Empire was actually very complete with the the drawing of the boundary, and this is especially for the Armenian uh, component of that that class because of the genocide. Quite naturally, yeah. Um, but also, I think even amongst uh, Arab Christians and others, there was a great deal of concern that. That Turkey, the Turkey that emerged in the period after the after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, was much more uh, centered on Turkish nationalism and Islam as a dominant component of ideology. Whereas Syria was being presented to them, or the Syria that they imagined, had a much more secular quality to it. Okay, and indeed, in Syri- Syria. I think of all the Arab states that emerged in the interwar period and the post-war period, is the state that most um, main, that, that tried to maintain that degree of secularism in its politics. You know, and and um, this is one of the things that's very troubling about the, the for many Syrians about the contemporary civil war is that how radi- radical and how how rapidly it descended into sectarian warfare. Whereas I think for many Syrians there was this sense that they had historically moved beyond sectarian identification, um, even though their sense of Syrianness was negotiated through their very difficult relationship with the Ba'athist state.
0: Mm-hmm. So But on the level of identity, I'm still wondering, so if you're talking about if you' talking about, for example, non-Muslim, let's say Armenian Aleanss, okay, they're not Ottoman anymore. They're not identifying as French per se.
1: No, I mean they're they're the idea of a Syrian identity in the interwar period is is anachronistic.
0: So, wh- so what's there? I
1: mean, I think they're identifying. Well, they're first, if their middle class, they're identifying as being modern, which is one of their critical right. identifying elements. They're identifying with Aleppo, which is a very profound for especially for Arab Christians and. Arab Jews in Aleppo, a very profound sense of identification. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they, I think that the, especially in Aleppo, their relationship to commerce and to industry was very, very profound. And that they saw themselves as businessmen. Um, They saw themselves as people who uh, would never put something as useless as religion and religious identification or even nationalism in front of uh, a good business deal. So they were, they are, are, the application of, I mean, this is something I've, I've always been very concerned about, is that there's a, a too early application, especially by scholars like James Galvin and Michael Provence, of an Arab nationalist identity in places like Aleppo in the interwar period. If you read the newspapers, you listen to what people are writing, you look how they behave, their sense of being Arab is very, very weak. Their sense of being Syrian is very, very weak. Their sense of being from Aleppo, of being modern, of being businessmen, of being bureaucrats, this is much stronger. And in fact, amongst the elite, there's still this residual Ottomanism. I mean, they continue to go to Istanbul on vacation. Sure. And and, and you know have relationships with their family members in Istanbul and across the border through marriage and through business and so on. So I think that that looking at the interwar period as a period when all of a sudden the Ottoman Empire ends and and the people in Aleppo become Arabs is utter nonsense from a historical perspective. That those processes that took place should be dated in the period after the Second World War, and especially with the rise of more mass education, with the introduction of Baathism um, and Nasserism, and the forms of mass politics. That's where that belongs. Not in the interwar period.
0: Well, that's interesting. I think that, of course, many of our listeners will also be familiar with Elizabeth Thompson's work, uh, Colonial Citizens, that maybe has some thematic overlap uh, with your book. But you know, in general, I just this is is more anecdotal than anything. uh, I know that a lot of people are working on the interwar period in the Middle East, in Syria, in Lebanon. You know, as we speak, we're talking in-progress dissertations, but to the extent that I'm familiar with their work, they're not so much engaging with the, the notion of middle class. This is not maybe the theme that's at the forefront of that uh, scholarship.
1: I'm very glad that there's this, this degree of interest in the interwar period. It's absolutely fascinating. I think some of my criticism of scholarships emerged from the interwar period is that it uses as its point of departure the the French Mandate archives. And rather than rather than starting with the Arabic language or the uh-huh. Ottoman experience, mm-hmm. it sort of adopts the narrative structure imposed by the archive itself and you know, archives privilege certain kinds of speech and certain stories over other kinds of speech and other kinds of stories. And so I think that what's very strong about Elizabeth Thompson's work, I think this is very strong in James Galvin's work and also Michael Provence's work, and I would add mine to that as well, is that we start from a very different perspective. Um, And that one thing that concerns me is that the war in Syria means that it will be more and more difficult for people working on... It is impossible to actually do work in Syria now. And so people are left with having to start with the archives... Yeah. Rather than start with Syria, and I think it will it will change it will unfortunately change our view of the interwar period, um, and that's just that's just the reality of the war, um, and there's not a lot we can do about that. I mean, the only thing we could conceivably do is try to share. Um, sort of, many of us have personal collections of newspapers and um, very rare books and so on that conceivably we could digitize them and share them online yeah. or something like this which I think would be a, a, a necessary corrective to, uh, to uh, uh, an over-reliance on French archival sources for understanding Syria.
0: Well, yeah, a lot of my colleagues complain that it's very hard to get at some of those Arabic sources, although, for example, many of the newspapers you used are available in Istanbul. They're not in Syria. So right, I mean, many, most period.
1: of the Ottoman... I mean, I, when I did my research on Aleppo's journalism... I did the bulk of that at the Adaturki Turkey Table, here in Istanbul, and and in fact, the it was extremely difficult in Aleppo to find uh, Ottoman era newspapers, except except in the special collections or private collections of Armenian intellectuals.
0: That's interesting.
1: And so um, I had plenty of sources for the Faisal period, the very brief rule of King Faisal, and then. Period moving forward. Um, in fact, I have a complete, yeah, you know, I have a complete run of the newspaper Halab, which was published um, by the uh, interim Arab government in Syria.
0: Well. I- <laughs> that is very interesting news, I'm sure, for a lot of people who are doing the history of Syria right now. I know, for me personally, I also was prospectively going to do my dissertation in Syria, and very much due to the conditions of the war kind of shifted my focus slightly to, you know, the next well, you're closest region on, you're is Adana. On greater Syria. Exactly, but I can use, it's much easier to get at those sources right. because they're mostly in uh, Turkey. Um you know, I don't know if you heard the episode, but we had a the last scholar who came on to talk about the history of Aleppo and the Ottoman Empire was none other than Hagnar Wattenpah. Of yes. course, your wife, if for our listeners who are wondering, they're not twins uh, <laughs> uh, in, in the strictest sense anyway. But uh, she also mentioned the notion of uh, forming some kind of. You know, pooling sources, making some sort of digital library. Right.
1: She's very concerned with uh, trying to get a visual library exactly. of Syria put together. She's an
0: architectural historian. Right.
1: And, um, you know, w- there's no evidence that the national libraries in Syria have been damaged. Um, private collections have been damaged. But it's also just a question of access. I mean, I, I you know, I think about the, the young scholar who has now just finished their exams and he or she is ready to embark upon a research project. If they want to work on Syria, which you know, it's just not going to happen in Syria. So they're not going to be able to spend time in Aleppo or Damascus using the resources there, but also sort of experiencing yeah, absolutely. Syria, which is absolutely critical. It it troubles me when we work on the history of the Middle East more generally, where our, our starting point, are European archives. Unless we're doing work on sort of colonialism writ large, but even then it's like the you you produce work that sounds like the hand of one hand clapping. Right? It it's it's incomplete. And it, it and it continues the forms of marginalization and brutality that are inherent to colonialism itself by silencing the voices yeah. of the of the victims and the the Sort of those who lived under colonialism. Mm-hmm. So again, archives archives aren't neutral spaces; they have to be understood as as an element of the colonial project itself. Yeah, um, and uh, can there, that one has to you know, leaven those that kind of source material with uh, a kind of correction, if you will, from the the site. Of the colonial encounter, and without that, I think the scholarship is just incomplete. Um, And so that's just you know this is the concern of a a middle aged historian, right? And I see so much wonderful work being produced. So I'm very confident. You know, I mean, you know, currently I'm the president of the Syrian Studies Association, and I you know I see I see a new series of questions that we can begin to ask about Syria. I mean, one of them is diaspora. Uh Right. So, you know, my colleagues like Sarah Galtieri and Akram Khater have, have really studied the first great Syrian diaspora. And now we're beginning the second great Syrian diaspora. And I can see people like Max Weiss and others really beginning to think about the meaning of that diaspora because this is a protracted conflict. I think that a very large proportion of the people who are now outside of Syria will remain outside of Syria. And they will begin to form communities and families and lives and put down roots elsewhere and will become a vital field of Syrian studies. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's, you know, and I you know, I look at the experience of the Armenians and Diaspora and other groups after trauma, and it's a very, very rich field of, of humane studies. And I think it's something that, uh, young people, if they're thinking about what they want to do, if they want to work on Syria, this may be an alternative, a rich alternative to studying the interwar period,
0: for example. And it certainly feeds into that study of the middle class because this diaspora right, this diaspora feeds has, a, has a tremendous middle class. middle class component, right? And in fact, we had a contribution to our blog Toasters of Rock, that showcases certain documents and story historical stories. Um, an article by Reem Belouni, who I, I mentioned here because she is working on that very topic. You're talking about the diaspora, the international Syrian diaspora, and their role in the 1925 revolt. So that that might be an example of the type of work you're talking about. Right.
1: So this is, I think, this is um, you know, this kind of the the current war in Syria is is the humanitarian disaster or crisis of our generation, and it's a tremendous challenge to all of us, but. I think that the, the wrong answer to that challenge is by retreating to European archives. To avoid,
0: archives. <laughs> yeah. All
1: right, that's the wrong answer. The The right answer is trying to engage with what we can engage with in the current context.
0: Well, certainly I hope that uh, your generation of scholars who had the opportunity to spend a longer time in Syria will be able to find a way to make more of those sources available. And maybe for those from my generation of scholars who are still doing their PhD research and want to be involved with a project in building a digital library, you know, where, the, where help is needed, maybe they can, maybe they should get in touch with the Syrian Studies Association or yourself.
1: The Syrian Studies Association is committed to identifying ways to preserve and extend knowledge about Syria, including perhaps creating virtual libraries and virtual archives that we can use, both visual archives and documentary archives. Uh, but it, it, it's very difficult and it's very daunting right now. And um, I encourage anyone who's really interested in this to try to contact us through the Syrian Studies website.
0: Well, Dr. Wattenpah, thanks again for being on the podcast and talking about uh, an old book that's still very much relevant. It's relative. not that old. It's
1: not that old.
0: <laughs> not that old. As old as, it's, It came out it's before a, I started grad school. So. It's one year
1: older than my children, <laughs> so it's not that old.
0: And still worth a good read for, for those who want to find out about that book. We have it along with a short bibliography on our website. And Ottoman it's available in paperback. Con- it's available in paperback, very reasonably priced.
1: And, um, you know, my next book will be out in just a matter of months from the University of California Press.
0: Right. That that book on the history of humanitarianism right. in the being, Middle East. Being
1: uh, Bread from Stones, The Middle East and the Making of Modern Humanitarianism.
0: Well, we look forward to that work as well and look forward to talking with you about it on the podcast when it comes to fruition that will be great thanks also to our listeners for tuning in that's all for this episode tune in next time and until then please take care